Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So today uh, is going to be a good time. We're going to go kind of back and forth in some um, different chapters. Um, But I'd like to start on the heels of where we left off uh, in Revelation last week when we finished our message series. When we went through all 22 chapters of Revelation, the theme that continued to come to the surface was the power of symbolism and the power of imagery and personification, and narrative, and characters, and the telling, and the retelling, and the expansion of the story all throughout the the book, not just Revelation, but the book, the Bible, the book. So in that vein, since we're all kind of primed to see symbols and to understand the power of that, I kind of wanted to take um, an opportunity to build off of the idea that you know, Christ was a lamb and Satan was a dragon and God's people are, are demonstrated as a bride but also as a city and that there's this other personification of God's ways kind of uh, being a reflection uh, of a, a glorious new Jerusalem and the world's ways being this disgusting prostitute of a, of a Babylon those imageries, I kind of want to build on them and continue on them by going into the Old Testament and looking at one more of those. So for our Advent message today, we're going to go into the Old Testament and we're going to look at the power of the symbolism of wisdom. Now wisdom isn't just a symbol of something, it it is a thing. But wisdom is personified in the Old Testament in the same way that John takes characters and symbols and personifies other things in Revelation. So this idea of taking a lot of information and assigning um, a character or a symbol to it, I've said numerous times it's not new, but I wanna look at a new way of doing that through this idea of wisdom. And I wanna do this on Advent because if you're not familiar with Advent, Advent is uh, it, it's a, it's a, a long-held church tradition on the church calendar. It dates back to the fifth century. And it essentially is a word, it's a Latin word, Advent is a Latin word that means arrival or arriving. And so all the way back to the fifth century, the church celebrated Christ's first arrival with Christmas and Advent, and they prepared for his second coming, or his second arrival. And so this time of year, from the Sunday after Thanksgiving all the way up to Christmas Day, traditionally in the church uh, calendar, is a time of celebration and also preparation. So in the vein of celebration and preparation, I'd like to take what we have been learning about symbols and use that to kind of prime our heart to celebrate and prepare what Christ's arrival meant the first time and what it means the second time in the category of wisdom, okay? So essentially what I'm saying is that Christ's first arrival had to do with wisdom. 
And there's something really powerful I want us to look at today. So with that in mind, we're gonna start today over in Proverbs. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter eight. And we're gonna read in verses just one through 11. And I wanna show you how the symbolism that John used, personifying specific things and assigning symbols to things, uh, is a long-held biblical tradition. And in this section of uh, scripture, we're gonna see wisdom personified as a woman. And all the women are like, yeah. <laughs> well, careful, because uh, foolishness is also personified as a woman, so. Well, somebody liked that one too much. <clears throat> Proverbs 8, let's go to verse one, and it says, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, on the crossroads, she takes her stand beside the gates in front of the town at the entrance of the portals. She cries aloud, to you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of man. O oh, simple ones, learn prudence. O oh, fools, learn sense. Hear for what I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Here's the truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold for wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Mm. If there was ever a collection of verses that were beneficial for today, it would be those. What is more valuable than all of the money in the world? Wisdom. Because if you don't have it, you won't hold on to that for very long. So the writer of Proverbs, who is Solomon, the son of David, gives us a picture of what wisdom looks like, and it's a woman, a wise woman, who's on the street corner calling out to fools, quit being a fool. Stop treasuring the wrong things. Okay, so now we've got a picture of wisdom as a woman, but the Old Testament doesn't just give us wisdom pictured as a woman, it also gives us wisdom pictured as foolishness. Go back one chapter to Proverbs 7, and let's go to verse 6. It says, for at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice and I've seen among the simple. I perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near, the, near her corner, taking the road to her house, and in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of the night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward, and her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. 
I've done all the religious and social things that I've needed to do in order to keep the face and don't let anybody know what my real vocation is. Verse 15, so now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. So come, let us take our fill of love until the morning, and let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. And with much seductive speech, she persuades this young man. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that this decision will cost him his life. This is fascinating. Solomon gives us a picture of a woman who's wise, crying out for people to listen to her. And what she has to offer is more valuable than silver and gold. And then he gives us another picture of a woman. And this woman isn't wisdom, this woman is personified foolishness. Foolishness is like a prostitute. Foolishness is like a church person who likes to play religion and come and offer all their sacrifices just to put on the mask and pretend that they have satisfied some of the conviction of their heart when really all they want is to run from their home and spend their night in somebody else's bed. That's foolishness. And it's personified in these two women and we see the infidelity and we see that mankind is often invited to either participate in wisdom or chase after foolishness. When you chase after foolishness, you end up finding out that it takes your life. Now what's fascinating to me is that for hundreds of years, the Jewish people had the book of Proverbs. Solomon wrote it, the people of Israel had it, and they were presented with these two symbols. Man, wisdom or foolishness. And every day when they would wake up, they would think, man, who am I going to follow today? Am I gonna follow lady wisdom or I'm gonna follow lady foolishness? And I can imagine moms telling their sons when they leave for the evening to go hang out with their friends. Hey, who are you gonna follow tonight? Don't be foolish. Don't chase some loose girl. Don't be unwise, be wise. And for hundreds of years, Israel had these two women right in front of them to look at and, and, and essentially ask them on a regular basis, who are you going to follow? There was just one problem. Israel always followed the prostitute. But not just Israel. All of the nations followed foolishness. And here's the worst part. The guy who wrote this book, Solomon, the son of David, he was the worst offender. He was the wisest man who ever lived and he spent all of his time chasing foolish women. Literal foolish women. 
So the question is, God, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do when you have given your word, your wisdom, who you are, your story, to a group of people to steward and then carry out to the rest of the world to be a blessing to the nations and they won't follow what you've asked them to follow. When you've literally given them the the most perfect picture of these two women, Israel, are you gonna follow the wise woman or are you gonna follow foolish women? What did God do when his own people couldn't follow wisdom, when the symbols weren't enough? He gave them something better than symbols. When symbols weren't enough, God gave something literal, literal wisdom. There was an arrival and advent of literal wisdom that showed up in a back town in Israel one evening and it was God's plan to do not just away with lady wisdom, but to bring a personification that's greater than just a symbol and embody wisdom in a literal human form. Let's read that story over in Matthew chapter one, verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before he came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay, so Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married, but Mary was found pregnant. The angel told Joseph, take her as your wife and the son as your own. That's important to the story Matthew's trying to tell because Joseph was a descendant of David. Do you see what the angel calls him? Joseph, son of David. Who was the other son of David? Solomon. Do you see what God's starting to do in his story here? I'm gonna bring redemption not just by me, God, taking on human flesh in, the form, in, in, in Jesus Christ. 
I'm also going to have Joseph adopt him into the family so that it preaches a powerful message to the Gentiles because one day they'll also be adopted in and I'm setting the precedent that I want in my family, that adoption's how we do this thing. So Joseph, son of David, I want you to name this kid Jesus and he will be a better son of David. And he's gonna fulfill what the prophets spoke, that he will be God with us. And so what we're seeing here is an angel announcing to Joseph that something monumental is about to take place. That this kid Jesus, who will very shortly, in nine months from now, gonna be laying in a tiny little manger of hay, that when Joseph looks down at this kid, when the wise men come, when the shepherds come, when everyone's gathered around to behold this kid, this kid is going to embody a lot of things. When everyone's looking down at this kid, they're gonna know that this kid is God with us. This kid is literally God with us. Not in a hypothetical situation, isn't it nice that God's like around us because he's God and he's everywhere, but no, he's literally God with us. But that's not all because when you look down at this kid, you also see that this kid is gonna be a better son of David. This kid is not gonna be the kind of kid who's going to embody wisdom and then chase foolishness. He's going to be the literal embodiment of wisdom. But when you look down at this kid, you're also going to see, we know from John chapter 1, verse 29, that this kid is going to be the Lamb of God. Remember that whole temple structure where in order to have your sins cleansed, a lamb had to die and then the blood was smeared on, on the mercy seat, the whole process of sacrifice? Well, guess what? Jesus has come and he's going to be the Lamb of God, the last sacrifice that ever needs to be made. But when you look down at this kid, he's not just the Lamb of God, he's the king. He's the better king. He's a better king than David ever was. He's gonna be the king over his people, but when you look down at this kid, you don't just see this kid's a king, you see this, king's, this kid is also gonna be a priest. He's gonna be not just the sacrifice, but he's gonna be the great high priest. That's what Hebrews tells us. But he's not just the priest, he's also the temple. He's the place where all of God's people will gather together. He's, he's the mercy seat. So the angel shows up to Joseph and declares to Joseph, hey, this kid's gonna be a big deal. There's a lot to this kid. And when you look at this kid in the manger, I want all of the reality of this flooding to you. I want you to know that this kid's the king, the priest. He's the greater temple. He's a better son of David. But there's something else I want you to know that he is. He is wisdom. When you look at this kid, I don't want you to just know this kid's gonna be king. I want you to look at this kid and know that this kid who will grow into a man and walk around and teach parables in the countryside, he is literally wisdom personified. And here's the fun part. In Greek, the word proverb and parable, same word. So let me take you back in Proverbs chapter eight to the end of that chapter. I'm gonna read you a section 
that's still talking about Lady Wisdom, but we find out that Lady Wisdom is just a symbol for something more, and that when wisdom shows up personified, it's actually Jesus. Go to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27. Speaking of wisdom, verse 27, when he, God Almighty, established the heavens, I was there. I don't want you to miss this. Chapter 8 is talking about wisdom. Solomon personifies it as a woman so that you can get this idea of the two women who are presenting us with either wisdom or foolishness. But we find out that as the story expands, wisdom isn't a woman. Wisdom is Jesus. And in verse 27, it says that when the heavens were established, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus. But this is Proverbs. Hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So wisdom, Jesus, has always existed. He was seen here present in creation And now this wisdom has come to creation declaring, find me. Come seek me. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this kind of changes some things. If I'm reading the whole story and I see that Jesus came to us not just as a king or as a teacher or as a priest, but he came to us as wisdom, then that kind of reframes the entire Christian life. Because what it means is that when I'm reading the parables, I'm not seeing the Christian life as an exercise in obedience. He didn't show up to say, hey, this is right, and this is wrong, and you just gotta do the right thing. He showed up with something better than that. He didn't come with a new list of rules or even a way to kind of clarify an older list of rules. Being a Christian, if Jesus is wisdom, means that following him is an act of being wise and not just of obedience. What am I saying here? What I'm trying to say here is that his ways 
are not just another set of ways that you can put up against any other ideology here in the world and see, well, which one comes out on top? He's not like anybody else. His ways aren't like anybody else. You can't legislate your way into the kingdom of God. You can't take what he taught and then just say, okay, well, if we just do all the things that he did, then it's everything. Everything is just a matter of right or wrong. Jesus came to demonstrate to us that there is something that he's inviting us into that doesn't ask us to resolve issues or solve problems on a basis of right or wrong. And you know this, Paul talks about this. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Not everything in the world is an issue of right or wrong. There are some things that morally can be right, but they're not wise. You see what he's doing here? He's inviting his followers to not just jump on a train like every other train that has a list of rules that's yes or no, right or wrong. He's asking us to follow him and consider, is this wise or is this foolish? That is a completely different way to live your life. And it will save you from some foolishness because you will be presented with opportunities. Okay, well, well, I, I could go here, or I could do this, or, or I could hang out here, or I could spend my time there, or I could buy this. And the question you ask yourself, well, well is, is it wrong? And you tell yourself, no, it's not, it's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with this. And so you go and do it. But you didn't ask the question Jesus would have asked you. Is it wise? Does that make much of Jesus? or is it a foolish waste of your time? Does that cultivate in you a heart that burns brighter for him? Or fundamentally, even though it's not wrong, is it a thing that's going to pour water on that flame? So here's what I want you to do. As a Christian, thinking about the idea that something has arrived to mankind that something is Jesus, and that Jesus personifies wisdom, I want you to start thinking about things in life and in the Bible, not in terms of right or wrong. I want you to start thinking of things in terms of wisdom. And I want you to consider what some of the Bible asks us to reframe our lives around now that we're following Jesus through this new lens. Here's one example, marriage. The Bible is clear that marriage, the biblical definition, which God established all the way back in Genesis, is between one man and one woman. And that's not just like a law or a rule, that's wise. So the argument for sticking to God's definition is not just, well, well we, can't, we, we can't do this other stuff just because he told us we, we can't. No, we don't do that other stuff because it's foolish to do that other stuff. So in terms of um, thinking about uh, like how a family should be structured, it, it should, why is it okay for two guys to get married and raise a kid? What's so wrong with that? It's foolish. 
because a child needs a father and a mother. Do you see the way that Christ, coming as wisdom, has invited us to consider everything in the world? Because there are people that you will watch online or legislators or, 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 or social celebrities and they'll make arguments. You're like, I can't really argue with that. I mean, okay, well, if we're just going to make sure that everything's fair for everybody, then we, like, I guess it's just like we can't say that's wrong. Guys, Christ isn't inviting you to consider issues based off of right or wrong or everything's fair. He's the creator of all of this, so he sets the rules. For us, it's not an issue of right or wrong or fair. It's an issue of wise or unwise. It is unwise for a guy to have nine wives. It is foolish for a woman to marry her dog. It is foolish to let a 40-year-old man marry a 10-year-old little girl. This is beyond, well, that's just wrong. Or who are you to tell me what's right or wrong? We're not even talking about right or wrong because what Christ came was, he came as wisdom and what he's asking the world to consider and specifically us is to start considering the way he frames this world, his creation on terms of wise and foolish. Here's another one, parenting. What is best for a child? For a mother and a father to raise that child in the ways of the Lord or to have some other outside influence that tells the parents, you don't know what you're doing, so we'll do the parenting for you. What is wise? to follow the guidelines that God has established for what marriage looks like, for what parenting looks like, or for us in our own wisdom who has a really bad track record of doing things like building towers and thinking we can reach God to reestablish the boundary lines for what is right and what is wrong and what a parent needs to do in their own home with their child. Now hear me, I'm not talking about that parent abusing their child. I'm talking about a godly man and a godly woman raising their child in the ways of the Lord and outside influence is telling you, we don't agree with the ways of the Lord, so we're going to supersede your authority with laws that rob you of that ability. Here's another example, relationships. Is there anything wrong with working at your job and the reason why you go is is because you're filled with ambition and you want to rise to the top and it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. It doesn't matter who you step on or who you treat because those people, they're not believers. I would never treat my church folk like that, but these are non-believers and and at work, there are no rules. If I don't do this at work, I'll never get noticed. If I don't, if I don't ignore these rules, and if I, don't, if I don't play the game the way that everybody else is playing the game, I'm never gonna advance. And so in my relationship with people, there's this sense that like, I never let anybody get too close. And the people who do come in close, they don't see the real me. 
And the whole way that I view relationships is that the world is here to serve me. Or is there a wiser way to consider relationships? When the person of wisdom got on his knees and said, I'm going to wash my disciples' feet. Is it wise to treat all relationships from a posture of servanthood? Or is it just a matter of right or wrong? Here's what I mean by that. Somebody does something against you. Well, they wronged me, therefore, I can wrong them back. Mm. Is that the wise example that was set for you? Because by my calculations, you, you, did, you had a long list of wrongs against the creator of the universe, and he still saw fit to save you when you weren't worth saving. So what's wise in your relationships? Here's another one, finances. Stop asking yourself the question, is this right or is this wrong? And start asking yourself, is this wise? Is this a wise investment? What is the wisest way to treat my finances? Well, the Bible is clear, generosity and self-sacrifice. That's the wisest way to treat your finances. Not Scrooge McDuck your whole pile and take diving excursions and swimming around in your gold. That's not, the, that's foolish. Say, no, no, but that's right. I earned that, so I spend it how I want. Hmm, interesting. Who gave you the breath in your lungs to go and earn it? Who gave you the heartbeat, the hands, the legs, the brain, the giftings to go earn it? Oh, you didn't make yourself? So none of that really belongs to you anyway. You're a steward. So stop thinking in terms of right and wrong and entitlement and start thinking in terms of wise and foolish. Here's one more. Identity. No, no, no. It, it seems right in the day and time that I live in that I can be autonomous enough to give myself my own identity. I feel like I'm a person trapped in a different body or I don't like the way I look and so I'm surgically gonna change that. I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of where I grew up or who my parents are and so I'm just gonna abandon everything and reinvent myself. And if I don't like what I did, then I'll reinvent myself in another three months. To the world, it seems right to be able to do that for your own autonomy. I'm me. Who are you to tell me? Who is anybody to tell me who I can and cannot be? But the Bible is clear. That kind of thinking, it's not right or wrong. It's foolish because there is a wiser way to consider your identity and that it has been given to you at birth from your creator. And your goal is to give that identity back to him in worship. So here's my conclusion. When you look at the advent of Jesus, he brought us many things. Salvation, he brought us a king, he fulfilled prophecy, he fulfilled lots of symbols from the Old Testament. Guys, for hundreds of years, we're talking about this man showing up and he finally showed up and he fulfilled everything that they said he would fulfill, including this one important one, wisdom. And I am convinced that wisdom 
should shape how we approach God. But it should also, it should shape how we approach each other. We need to unlearn the thing that the world had taught us, and honestly, some churches have taught us, that every decision you make is based off of a right or wrong scale. Look, that will get you some answers in some situations, but it's a faulty setup because there are some things that are not right or wrong. They're wise or foolish. So if you stop trying to make every decision off of right or wrong and you start using the better scale of Christ as wise or foolish, you won't miss any of the right or wrong answers because they fundamentally always boil down to wise or foolish. But if you run your life off of right or wrong, you will miss the foolish and the wise choices. You see where I'm going? So the invitation is in life with one another, start thinking in terms of wise and foolish. In your relationship with God, start thinking in terms of wise and foolish. Here's a perfect example, and this is the one I'm gonna leave you with. When you're reading through scripture, stop looking at scripture as a list of things that are either right or wrong. Well, it says I can't do that, so I can't do that. Consider the exhortations in the word of God as invitations to live a wiser life. Look, if, if, there was, if there was something that I could give the young people in this room that would change your life over the next 30 years, it's this. Start asking God for wisdom. Stop trying to make every decision and think of everything in terms of, well, it's not wrong. Well, you're right, it's not wrong, but it's stupid. And it's gonna develop a habit inside of you that you're gonna to have to break 20 years from now anyway. So don't even start, it's foolish. Man, if you can start praying right now at 15, if you can start praying at 20, Lord, make me wise. I want to, I want to be the wisest person among my peers. In any room I'm in, God, I want to be the wisest. I want everything to be filtered through the filter, the biblical filter of wise and foolish. I'm telling you, your life will be transformed. Here's an example. Romans 15, 1 through 7. Paul finishes an amazing book with a list of commands that reflect Christ himself and, how, and what we're supposed to do about it. And the temptation is always to look at this as a command. Well, this is something I gotta do. I'm obliged, I'm obligated to do this. But I want you to think about this and really everything in life through this new lens of wise. Romans 15, one through seven, it says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Ugh. Are you kidding me? You know how long it's taken me to get strong in my faith and now I have to, uh, for the week? And you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about people who eat only vegetables and people who eat meat. Nobody? All right. Back then it was an idolatrous thing, but I always think it's funny every time I read through the book that that's the illustration he uses. He says that people who eat vegetables are weak and people who eat meat are strong. Now that's not the illustration I'm making, I'm just pointing out that this, that's funny. 
The argument he's making here is that in any given church, there are a group of people who are not mature in their faith, and there are always a group of people who are mature in their faith. And it is not the responsibility of the immature to become mature before they can start milling about and becoming part of the family. It is the responsibility of the mature to bear with the failings of the weak until they grow up in their faith. Ugh. That sounds miserable. I don't want to do that. I want to stand around and say, grow up. Quit being a baby. But that's not what Paul's encouragement is. (laughs) Paul says, that's 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 not how you're supposed to act because that's foolish. Why is that foolish? Let's go on. Let each of them please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why is it not a matter of right or wrong? You're weak, acting like that is wrong. Grow up and be right, like me, over here. Mm. See, that's not how Christ came to you. Christ didn't come over with a bunch of finger wagging. Christ demonstrated to you that it was wisest to bear with the weakness so that they could grow up in their faith so that all of us with one voice could magnify Jesus. This is just one example. There are hundreds in the Bible. Every time you come to a scripture that your flesh wants to say, "Mm, that's a right or a wrong. You're either in or you're out. I want you to force your mind to think in terms of Okay, what if I don't look at this as a thing that's, okay, well now I, I have to, I'm obligated to bear with them. Well, okay, I might bear with them, but I'm gonna do it gritting my teeth. What if you didn't consider the command something that just had to be done but was an invitation for you to live as a wiser person. Then the weak who come are not something we just have to bear with in an obligation. They're an invitation for us to participate in Christ's wisdom in watching them grow in their faith however long it takes because that's what he did for you. And if you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So on this Christmas, last service before Christmas for us, this Advent time together, the exhortation I want to bring to us as a church is that Christ came to us as a child, but that child was loaded with things this human would become. That as this child grew, we're told would grow in wisdom, but was also the personification of wisdom. 
that he would one day become king, that he would suffer, he would raise again, and he would sit at the right hand of the Father, and the Father would say, now make your enemies a footstool. That all of this is true things that we know about Christ, but the greatest of these for us to consider today is he came to us as wisdom, and the invitation to us on this Christmas Eve is to consider from this day forward, everything that we do through a lens of wise or foolish. Lord, what am I gonna do with my time and my talent and my resources? Do I go back to school? Do I purchase this? Do I do this for my child or make them learn it themselves? It's not right or wrong. It's wise or foolish. Merry Christmas, church. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.